Mark chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Very good morning to you all. It's, thank you. It's good to be here, isn't it? To receive God's word together. And we're in the book of Mark, chapter 10, and verses 1 to 12. Page 1014, 1014 in the Church Bibles, Mark chapter 10. This is 1 to 12, Jesus on marriage and divorce. And you might be thinking, really? Do we have to look at the subject of divorce? Such a sensitive subject, isn't it? Such a painful subject. Why on earth are we looking on the subject of divorce this morning? Well, because as a church, we want to be committed to studying the whole Bible. We want to study the whole Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Mark. And this morning, we're in chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And it's got a heading in the church Bible, divorce. So what has Jesus got to say on this subject of marriage and divorce. That's what matters, isn't it? What has Jesus got to say? So let's dive in at verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus then left that place. So what is that place in Mark chapter 10 verse 1? Well, the parallel passage to Mark chapter 10 Verses 1 to 12 will tell us. 
which is Matthew chapter 19. What do we read in Matthew 19, verses 1 and 2? When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So what is this journey that Jesus has taken from that place, which is Galilee, to Judea? Let's have a quick look at the map. So there's Galilee there in the north. So Jesus left that place, and there's the Jordan River running from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. And there is Judea there. So Jesus was probably round about there, do you think? So you could see the Jordan River there, like a boundary, where Perea is there. So Jesus is in Judea. And who was reigning in the region of Judea at that time? And I think that's quite significant. Who was reigning in Judea at that time? Well, what do we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22? But when he heard that Archelos was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And that was during Jesus' birth. And who was Herod's great-grandson? Well, another Herod, Herod Antipas. And do you remember when John the Baptist sort of condemned Herod Antipas' marriage arrangements, what happened to him? He had his head chopped off, didn't he? Do you remember what's written in Mark chapter 6? Verses 14 to 17. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So Jesus is in Herod's region. He's in Judea. And the Pharisees were probably thinking to himself, let's try and get Jesus to say something against Herod and maybe his marriage arrangements. And then Jesus will be killed in the same way as John the Baptist was killed. Do you think that was going on? You can see how sneaky the Pharisees are. Oh, Jesus, he's here in Judea where King Herod is reigning. Let's try and get him to say something against Herod and his marriage arrangements, just like John the Baptist did. And maybe Jesus' head will be chopped off as well, and he'll be done away with. But Jesus is so wise, isn't he? 
in the way he answers the Pharisees in verse 3. Don't you love this? What do we read there? Mark chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. I love how wise Jesus is in answering people's questions who are trying to trap him. Jesus, in effect, is saying, you're not going to be able to trap me into saying something on this subject. You're not going to be able to trap me into saying something against Herod and against his marriage arrangements. And it's interesting that Jesus answers their question with a question. And I think that's a lesson for us. No doubt this week people are going to ask you questions. They're going to ask you maybe, so what's your view on marriage, same-sex marriage? What's your view on divorce? Or why do you believe in God? And I think it's so wise to sometimes answer a question with a question. So if someone will ask us this week, why do you believe in God? We could return the question to begin with, well, why don't you believe in God? And when they sort of describe the God that they don't believe in, we can say, I don't believe in that God either. When they say, well, I don't believe in God because he's cruel, he's harsh, he's a homophobe, he's a bigot. Oh, that that God doesn't exist. The God that I know isn't like that at all. Now, let me tell you about my God, the God that I know, the one true living God. So I think it's very wise to answer a question with a question. But Jesus also says, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at the Bible. In effect, Jesus is saying, well, what does the Bible say? What did Moses command you? So Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is basically saying, well, what does the Bible say on the subject? Why are you trying to trap me? Let's just look at the Bible together. And that's what we should say when we're asked maybe sensitive questions, controversial questions. So what's your view on same-sex marriage? It doesn't matter what I think. Let me tell you what the Bible says, though. And this is what I stand on, the word of God. Very wise, isn't it? Jesus is so wise. We should always say, well, this is what the Bible says about marriage. This is what the Bible says about this subject, this, that, and the other. It's the book of truth, isn't it? And life. No one has been able to disprove it. And what do we read then in verse 4 of Mark chapter 10? They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. (laughs) Did Moses actually write that? Well, yes. He pretty much did. But let's put Moses' words into context. It's so dangerous, isn't it, just to take a sentence of what someone says. Because, do you know, the Bible says that there's no God if you take it out of context, the whole sentence is, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So let's put Moses' word into context. So the Pharisees are probably quoting 
Deuteronomy chapter 24, do you think? Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. What do we read there? If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and a second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So is God approving divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4? No, God isn't condoning divorce, is he, in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. It's a bit like the law in Deuteronomy 23. What do we read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 18? What's the law we read there? You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or a male prostitute into the house of the Lord, your God, to pay any vow. Now, God would never condone prostitution, would he? Actually, in another part of the Bible, he says that prostitution is detestable to him. It grieves him. But if someone is making a living out of prostitution, then don't bring your earnings to the church, to God's house, as an act of worship. So why, why did God command Moses to write this law on divorce in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4? Well, look at verse 1. What is displeasing and indecent? So, could an Israelite divorce his wife because he doesn't like the cooking? Because she burns the toast all the time. There we are. That's not pleasing to me. That's a bit indecent. Bad cooking, burning the toast. So, let's have a divorce. No, the word indecent literally means unclean. That's very significant. The word indecent literally means unclean. Now, some people think that sort of indecent or unclean there means adultery. So if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because she's having an affair, and he finds something indecent about her, she's having an affair, then he can write her a certificate of divorce. But I don't think finding something indecent about her is adultery here. Because adultery in the Old Testament was punishable by death, wasn't it? What do we read in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10? If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. 
So something indecent or something unclean in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, can't be adultery. Also, because the woman who is sent away was able to remarry as well, wasn't she? No, something indecent or uncleanness would be a disease or maybe a bleeding condition. So what should happen, what should have happened, is that the husband would lovingly and gently look after his wife, who is seriously unwell. He should have been, love, you've got this disease, this bleeding condition, don't worry about it. You're not displeasing to me. I'm not going to send you away. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to look after you. But, because God knew that the Israelites were hard-hearted, that some men might not look after their wives properly if they became ill, God gave this law to protect the unwell wife. So this law is very kind. It's protection against a wife who's become unclean with a disease or maybe a bleeding condition. So in effect, in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, God is saying to the woman, really, look, if your husband isn't willing to look after you properly because you've become ill, then he can give you a certificate of divorce so that you can be looked after properly by someone else, a godly, strong, loving, caring man. But there's also a punishment for the selfish husband as well, isn't there? So if the woman's new husband divorces her as well, or if he dies, the original husband can't have her back. He can't sort of say, well, I'm a bit lonely now. I I really shouldn't have sent my wife away, should I? I I think I did a mistake. It's like, no, sorry, you've blown it now. Because you acted in such a hard-hearted, selfish way, you've got to face the consequences. If we choose to sin then we have to expect the suffering that comes with sin. There's always consequences to sin. If an elder of a local church commits adultery, then he's blown it. He can't serve as an elder. If I am ever unfaithful to Hannah, that's it. Don't ever let me stand here ever again. I've blown it. I can still be a Christian, I can still be a child of God. I can know forgiveness. I can repent. But I can never serve as an elder again. I should never be allowed into a pulpit again. There is also discipline for sin. And Jesus' reply to the Pharisees is brilliant, isn't it? In verse 5. So back in Mark chapter 10, verse 5. What do we read there? Jesus says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. So what is Jesus saying there? Well, Moses wrote Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, because some of you men are selfish, evil scumbags 
who wouldn't look after your wives properly if they became ill. You would find them displeasing, and you'd want to send them away. That's why Moses wrote this law, to care for these women who become ill, who've got terrible husbands like you. So powerful, isn't it, the way Jesus replies to them. And then Jesus quotes some of Moses' other writings about marriage. And really, this is what the Pharisees should have quoted when Jesus asked them the question, so what's Moses written about the subject of marriage and divorce? Really, the Pharisees should have gone straight to Genesis 1, shouldn't they, and Genesis 2. What do we read in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 to 9, where Jesus teaches us now about marriage and divorce? Mark chapter 10, verses 6 to 9. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus is referring to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 here, isn't he? What is the original quote? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So marriage, according to the Bible, the word of God, is only to be between male and female And it should be for life. Now, I could get myself into a lot of trouble for saying that, couldn't I? If I said that in the workplace, I'd probably get sacked, wouldn't I? If I said marriage should only be between a man and a woman, and it should be for life. (laughs) But that's the Bible. That is the word of God. Marriage is for life. But we do have this law in Deuteronomy 24. So the divorce law in Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4 was a kind of contingency plan for a fallen human race, wasn't it? Marriage is for life, but if hard-hearted husbands aren't willing to look after their wives who become ill then he could give her a certificate of divorce so that she could be looked after properly by someone else. So does that make sense? I think that's what's going on in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. But I think it's important to note that the New Testament gives two circumstances when divorce is permissible. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, verses 31 to 32? Jesus said, 
It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then Jesus effectively says the same thing in Matthew 19, which is a parallel passage to Mark 10, verses 10 to 12. So Matthew 19, verses 8 to 9, Jesus says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So that is one circumstance where divorce is permissible. Sexual immorality or adultery or marital unfaithfulness kills a marriage. As we saw earlier, in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, you would be put to death. It kills a marriage. But divorcing, even even because of adultery, isn't a law. It's just an option. Does that make sense? Divorce, even because of adultery, isn't a law. It's just an option. Because I know of two men, I know them personally, I know them quite well, who've had wives who have been unfaithful to them, Christian men, and they've welcomed them back. And they are my heroes. It's quite something, isn't it? I'd understand if they said, look, you've been unfaithful. This marriage is now dead. There has to be a divorce. But he said, look, I love you. I forgive you. I'm willing to forget all about it. Come back. That's a real man, isn't it? I think. Someone who can forgive like that. Loves his wife, even when she's been unfaithful. That's quite something. And then the second circumstance where divorce is permissible is found in 1 Corinthians 7, this uh, is 13 to 16. And if a woman has a husband is, who is not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the other occasion is, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever says, I can't live with you anymore, I need to divorce you, then the believer can't stop their spouse from divorcing them, from leaving. Such a sad circumstance if that ever happens. 
So two occasions, according to the New Testament, where divorce is permissible. Adultery, which kills a marriage, and when an unbeliever wants to divorce their believing spouse. But again, this isn't a law, it's just an option. The design is marriage for life. But many people probably think that the idea of being married to the same person for life is absurd. I suppose if you told maybe your unbelieving friends, family, maybe work colleagues or neighbor, what do you think about the idea of being married to the same person for life? You'd probably get maybe some replies like this, wouldn't you? Well, what, what if they don't love each other anymore? They should be allowed to divorce then if they just decide that they don't love each other anymore. What if they aren't just getting on? What if they're not getting on? They should be allowed to divorce then, shouldn't they? What if their lives are going in different directions? Have you heard people say that? Are we divorced? Our lives are just going in different directions. Or have you heard people say, well, she doesn't understand me anymore. Or he doesn't understand me anymore. That's why we got a divorce. Or what if I just fall in love with someone else? Isn't that a reason for divorce? No. What does Jesus say? What God has joined together, let no one separate. In Mark chapter 10, verse 9. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So why is Jesus so strict? Why is he so obsessed with marriage for life? Why does Jesus say marriage is for life? Well, we see in the book of Genesis that marriage is to look like the triune God. What do we read there in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28 again? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Who is this is and our Then God said, well, us is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity made Adam and Eve. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And what do we read then in... Genesis 2, verse 24. Man leaves his father and mother and is united or becomes one with his wife. And they become one flesh. So marriage is to look like the triune God. God is more than one distinct persons who are united, who are one. So God is a family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are united. They are one. And what is marriage? Well, marriage is more than one distinct persons who are united, who are one. Marriage is a man and a woman who are united, who have become one. So marriage is to reflect God So when we look at marriages, what should we see? We should see unity, 
We should see grace, we should see love, and we should see fellowship. So when married couples sort of split up, you can almost imagine the Godhead saying, no, that's not what we look like. Marriage is supposed to look like us. Marriage is supposed to be united. It's supposed to be loving and gracious. It's supposed to be a fellowship. It can't split up. But there's also another reason why Jesus says that marriage is for life. Marriage is for life because marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Let's let's close with um, Ephesians 5. This is 21 to 33. Incredible words, aren't they? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to the local church in Ephesus. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So every marriage should be a picture of Jesus' love and care for the church. That's quite a responsibility, isn't it, for married couples. Every marriage should reflect Jesus' love and care for the church. And every marriage is a picture of the church submitting to Jesus and the church respecting Jesus. So when a husband and a wife divorce, you can almost imagine Jesus breaking his heart. Oh, that's not how I love. That's not how I love and care for the church. And that's not how the church is supposed to submit and respect to me. Marriage, a wonderful picture, isn't it, of Jesus' love and care for the church. And the question this morning, do you all know, do you all know Jesus' love and care for you? Are you Jesus' bride? And Jesus is a faithful bridegroom who will never divorce his church. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is like my two friends 
who loves us and forgives us even when we are unfaithful. I've been unfaithful to Jesus. He hasn't divorced me yet, and he never will. When I'm mucking about, Jesus comes looking for me. He says, what are you mucking about with that over there? Aren't I enough for you? Come on, come back. Come back into my loving arms. Repent and keep trusting in me. Jesus, our faithful bridegroom, who loves us in spite of our filth, our unfaithfulness, our adultery. What a saviour. So let's remind ourselves briefly of some of the things we can learn from this passage. One, we are to answer questions in a wise way by looking at what the Bible says all the time. Secondly, marriage, according to the word of God, is to be between male and female, and it should be for life. Thirdly, marriage is to look like the triune God, a united fellowship of grace and love. Fourthly, marriage is to reflect Christ's love and care for the church and the church submitting to Christ and respecting him.